0: In episode two of MobyCast, John and Chris lead a conversation about transitioning legacy applications to Docker. Welcome to MobyCast, a weekly conversation about containerization, Docker, and modern software deployment. Let's jump right in.
1: So here we are on our second Mobycast. This is pretty good. The first one was fun and a learning experience. And so the second one, we hope to learn even more and have even more fun. So in order to make it more fun, I decided that this week's topic is going to be comedy. So we have to be funny today. You ready for that, Chris and Rich? The pressure. Yes, just kidding. So what we're going to talk about is what goes on inside of an organization when you decide to make the switch to Docker who usually makes that decision what what it's like when people make that decision um you know when it comes from the top down or the bottom up and um then what does the company and the team that that decide to do it what did they go through so i just wanted to start with a question for chris um because chris you're the one of the three of us that was the first to say i'm going to give this this a try i'm going to learn docker um so can you tell us about the company situation you were in or, or if it was a personal project or, or what got you into it and how did that go?
0: Sure. So um, I had heard about Docker, you know, in various circles and things that I read. I played around with it a little bit, but hadn't really had the opportunity to to dive too deeply into it until I, about three years ago, um, two, two, three years ago, joined a company and they had just started to um, transition to Docker specifically to run their Amazon webloads, And so uh, one of my very first tasks, um, day one of starting there, was to um, start doing that, start Dockerizing um, all of the the services, all the microservices that we had running inside AWS. Um, so it was very much um, get thrown into the deep end of the pool Um, ramp up very very quickly um, and figure out how to how to do this and what does it mean and and to start running into all these these brand new concepts and, and really different ways of thinking so do you know who at that company um you know what what
1: their role is who was it that decided to make that decision in the first place it sounded like it was already made before you joined them but do you know where it came about
0: it was. So, um, again, that particular, at that point, in t- at that point in time, I think we had about four services, um, that were currently being deployed and actually most of those were, I believe all of those were actually running. I'm trying to think back now. Um, I think all of those were running and, um, they were Dockerized at that point. Um, I don't know, um, you know, when that decision was made by whom. It was a relatively recent decision because I actually joined that team when it was early on. So when I signed my employment agreement, there was four developers on that team, on the engineering team. And by the time I left a year later, uh, we were up to over 20. Um, so a uh, pretty small team and also um, not very experienced. So I, I believe it was, it was um, pretty much ad hoc. We had a, um, a great um, engineering leader, um, for that team, that came from Amazon, um, uh, Microsoft as well. Uh, but I think Docker was was new to him as was was new to him as well. So I think they said um, it was again you know, pretty much an ad hoc process where it was like, hey, we 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 understand at a high level. There's some great features here for Docker. Um, let's go ahead and get our toes toes wet and and start playing around with it. Um, especially at that point in time, we, we still weren't really running. Um, production, we weren't. We, we hadn't opened the doors, if you will, for for the ver- first version of the service. Um, so that experimentation phase was still um, kind of non non critical. So when I when I came on board, basically these these services were kind of hand tuned for Docker. Docker was installed by hand. Um, deploys were literally um, scripts to stop Docker, copy images, start Docker. I mean, it was it was really rudimentary, um, and so. Uh, we took it
1: from there. Interesting. So it does. You said that there was a strong engineering leader there that had come from Amazon and Microsoft. I mean, we don't know for sure. It sounds like, but it wouldn't be surprising if that was the person that said, no, "Let's try this out. Let's see if we can make good use of
0: this." I suspect so. Um, yeah. It's just part of just overall just just good engineering practices. So uh, you know, we whether it be. Things like logging or monitoring or just deployment, um, just kind of knowing that hey, this is this is definitely a, a technology that warrants us a uh, you know a closer look, and so let's start let's start using it.
1: Right, it, it's so interesting to me because I'm just kind of wondering for a lot of companies how it makes its way in. Um, so the first time I heard about it was I went it was probably three or four years ago. Um, I went to a Ruby on Rails meetup in San Diego, their SD Ruby group, it's called. Everything, all the meetups in San Diego are called SD and then the name of the topic because people are not that creative <laughs> about their meetup names. See, we're on the comedy still. Um, the And the person that stood up and talked about Docker was a pretty young person, somebody you know, early to mid-20s and essentially trying to convince the group and the group was, you know, ranging from, I think I was mid-30s at the time, and the group ranged from probably mid-40s to to several people that were just even still in college. And so the this person, you know, had maybe a couple of years of software development experience professionally and stood up and, and said, Hey, I found this cool thing called Docker, and here's some tools that you can use to um, use Docker in your Ruby development environment. And it's great because... Um, you know all the benefits of Docker, but he was really focused on saying how it had changed his development processes, and he wasn't talking much about using it in production. And I think a lot of the sort of graybeards in the audience were kind of looking at it going, "Wow, that looks like a lot of overhead." Um, you know, you can't even get into your server to see what's going on without doing an extra level of of shelling. You know, you have to you have to create a a terminal. Um, to get into the Docker thing in order to see you know the logs and see what's going on and and you also have to map these ports and um, do all this extra stuff that feels like a lot of work for for when we could just be typing you know rails space s and now we have we've got a server running on our machine, but I think you know this guy was convinced and we all were kind of not convinced Um, so it's sort of interesting to see to to have that be my first impression and then. Um, be proving totally wrong over the years, like completely wrong. Like th- that was the future, and I just didn't see it at the time. Um, but I bring it up because if that was the person in an, in an organization that was fired up about Docker, um, and there were you know people that had 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 the the bulk of their experience, their software development experience pre Docker,
0: um, I could see there being a lot of pushback. Absolutely, um, and. I think this is kind of true across the board with, with lots of new technologies. There's a lot of um, just people in general, resistance to change. Um, and uh, as much as we all kind of say we like to learn new things and and whatnot, actually changing the way that we work um, and adopting these new te- technologies, a lot of times there's, there's a lot of resistance there, right? Because it is different. It requires friction um, to adopt those things. So Docker um, itself, it's, it is a it is a huge paradigm shift um, in how you think about software um, and how it is um, uh, developed, debugged, um, deployed, uh, packaged. Um, it, it, there's some pretty radical changes in the way that you work, um, and there is going to be this this period of adoption where it just doesn't feel good. Um, it's it's uncomfortable, it's messy, it's frustrating. Um, but when you if you stick with it. Um, you'll get over that and you will come to see the, um, uh, appreciate the, the, the features that you do get from that, the benefits that you do get from that. And it gets a lot easier too, right? As you start to really assimilate those concepts and those paradigm shifts, um, you become more comfortable with that. So I've, I've kind of gone through this now with like three separate engineering teams kind of introducing them to Docker um, switching us over from from a non Docker process to a Docker process, and it's been like the exact same adoption pattern each time, um, which is which has been very very interesting, but also kind of now comforting for me to know as well because I kind of I kind of <laughs> know how the story I know how the movie ends. Right, right. So I do want to talk about what that pattern is,
1: um, as, and maybe you can talk about it in terms of Kelsys and what what you saw when you introduced Docker to Kelsys. But before we get there. I still want to talk about this, this idea of pushback a little bit because, um, in fact, when you joined Kelsis, it was in January of 2017, um, I think you got some pushback from me on Docker because I, I was still not convinced at the time. Do you remember any of any of our conversations about that?
0: I, I do remember um, me, uh, you, you and I talking, and uh, I believe that was like one of the first things that I noticed was like, oh man, we, we got to... We got to fix this. We got to get on Docker. We have to start using ECS. Um, you know, this is, this is we got some work here to do. And I and I do remember you um, kind of expressing some reservations, if you will, about that. Like, whoa, wait a minute, right. why do we need to change? Things are working just fine. Um, what, do, what do you mean Docker? Um, what do you mean ECS? What is? What are you talking about? So, um, but I think you know, once you start like just kind of talking about, okay, well, let's talk about what it is, right? Like. Why would we do this? Like, um, there's some really um, some great benefits to doing this, and let's talk about that stuff. Um, and you need to, to to work through that. So there's, and I think kind of what you're alluding to here too. Like, there's there's a couple different levels of of buy-in that you have to get right. Like, you have to get buy-in at the like the benefit level, um, kind of at the business decision level. Like, kind of really understanding, like, yeah, this is this is the right thing to do from just a business efficiency. Um, operation standpoint, and then you need to get the buy-in from the the people actually that were, you're going to change the way that they work, right? So the developers, the engineers, um, you have to get buy-in there. So there's 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 two levels of buy-in that you need to get. Right, and I think one of the things that happened
1: early on was that um, we were doing a deployment for some client, and uh, I had checked in early in the week, and then checked in in the middle of the week, and then checked in at the end of the week. And I was like, "Are you serious? We're still deploying like what This should have taken a couple of hours. what What are we doing? Um, so what was happening during that time? And why, well, did that, why that Why did something
0: that used to take a couple of hours take a week? So now we're talking about, so when we first adopted, docker why the deployment process got longer before it yes, got quicker
1: exactly. right because uh, still on that topic of pushback and i guess now we're talking about pushback from the business level a little bit
0: mm-hmm. yeah and so like i said that's that's that that um that kind of uh cycle of adoption where it's you know when you first start doing the switchover there's some really big um just Paradigm shifts and changes in the way that you you think about developing, testing, deploying, packaging the software that makes things uglier and messier um, in the short term. And there's a lot, there's a lot of concepts to ramp up on. Um, and they're they're usually concepts that are pretty, pretty new for most people, um, or at least they haven't thought about them um, in a in a in a deeper way. And so that's kind of what we went through at at Kelsus was just that ramping up on on various new things not and not only was it docker and containerization it was also just some of the um the additional engineering um sophistication that 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 went around around that right so not only were we moving to docker but we were also kind of figuring out how to like automate our builds and automate our deployments first through um, bash scripts and then and then um, actually start using a continuous integration system, which we weren't using. So there, are definitely um, some uh, new concepts, technologies, tools that we were using along the way that just just required quite a bit of ramp up. Um, a lot of um, there's there's pitfalls. There's the the common stumbling blocks that we all that we all go through um, type thing. So so yeah, there's 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 a there's an adoption period where it's it's uh it's messy and it takes longer, but um, but it gets better. Right, and also to bring. To bring you along for the ride, Rich, and and anybody that's
1: listening, part of what I'm getting at is that we had relied heavily on platforms as a service before Docker. So we were using things like Heroku or Amazon's Elastic Beanstalk um, to do our deployments. Um, And they do take care of a lot of things that you need to think about when you use Docker and ECS and Amazon um, outside of the platform as a service arena. Uh, so they are doing stuff for you for free and they don't always they don't do it in a way that lets you control that stuff. they just do it. Um, you know when you're working with a team that that doesn't have experience uh, building web applications at scale um, and the web applications that you're building are sort of guaranteed to be to not need scale, um, those still might be a good way to go. Uh, you, you still might, you know, need to throw together some some software real quick and just get it on online somewhere without taking even the extra few hours to to do anything other than deploy it and show it to people and say, does this look like where you want to go from here? Uh, but once you have serious software that um, that you know is going to scale and that's gonna that's gonna require lots of different services um, and lots of people working on it then the platform-as-a-service models uh, where it's completely opinionated how your software is deployed starts to fall over a little bit. Every new application is is an entirely new set of machines or or an entirely new application in the, um, like in Heroku, it's an entirely new application that you have to manage. And they're not connected to one another. You can't do reports across them. You can't look at your infrastructure all at once. And so many other problems. I mean, we can talk about the benefits of Docker in general, and that's not what the point is. The point is, coming from that to Docker feels a little daunting. And it is, it's quite simply, it's more. There's more to it. There's more work you have to do. Um, and I think I, as the person who was running Kelsys, was used to not having to do a lot of work to get a um, a piece of software in front of clients. But the reality was that sort of right at the same time that Chris joined Kelsys, um, our clients were needing more. They were actually needing more than just a a quick, almost toy application thrown up on a platform as a service. They were needing real applications with real operations and support and infrastructure um, that a lot of people worked on all together at once and had different deployment schedules, et cetera. Before we got into the pushback on Docker, Chris, you were were about to talk about the pattern or the path that you've seen happen a few times. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure, absolutely. Definitely,
0: the um, the first big issue that folks uh, run into with with Docker is just kind of this idea of like, what does it mean to be running inside of a container, and what are now the moving pieces as I'm as I'm developing things? So, you kind of instantly, right out of the gate, people end up running to the issue of, okay, I'm I'm used to writing my code, I can um, run it. Um, I may have some support for hot reloading and I'll bring up my editor, change some, some lines of code and expect that to be, to be kind of instantly updated and just work. And that's one of the, the first use case scenarios that like right out of the box just doesn't work for developers. Um, so hot reloading is definitely not something that um, is going to be um, straightforward, you know, right out of the box. You can, you can achieve, achieve those kinds of setups, but um, it takes you, there are some, uh, some setup that you have to do to, to achieve that. And then also you have to realize like what it is that you're doing and, and some of the the, the pros and cons of, of doing that. But for me, it's definitely been like, I think one of the, the hardest things for uh, anyone that's adopting Docker to, to understand is just like containers and like, what does that really mean? Um, it's not just this running a program or running your software on a machine anymore. You're, you're running it inside of a container. And a container is this very much this isolated bubble um, that really is for the most part um, isolated from everything else. It's like completely disparate. And, and that is just like this huge mental shift for developers and that causes a lot of the the initial struggle with with adopting it. I think
1: one of the first things that I remember along those lines was, okay, I put my thing in a container, I ran it, and um, oh, wait a minute, now my container's not running anymore. What happened? Why is it not running anymore? Um, I thought I started it. And it's because the process inside the container had some kind of error, and it caused the container to shut down. And the logs are in the shutdown container, so I can't even see what happened? And I have no idea how to troubleshoot that, that scenario. And I think that that's pretty common for people's
0: first experience with Docker, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Because it, again, it kind of boils back down to the fact that you are running inside this, this container that's completely isolated from the rest of it. So unless you do something different in your setup to kind of like punch a hole into that um, barrier, it's not going to happen. And so, yeah, you have... You have something that goes wrong inside your code that's being that's running inside that container. It um, has an exception. It it terminates, and you know it's just that's it. There's and so you, you can you can get access to that stuff, but you have to do some extra steps, right? So it's like you have to go look and say, okay, what was the what was that container that was running? And that's a special flag um, when when kind of looking at Docker processes containers. Um, and then from that, you have to say, okay, I got to go use this logs command in Docker, and and then that will then allow me to see a little bit more on like what happened, um, what went to 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 standard out, standard error um, inside the container to kind of understand, you know, why did my what did my software fail? So, exactly. so you now you're, you're now in this like this this it's like so as a developer that's new to this is that's like there's there's a lot of screaming um, and yelling and frustration, right? Because it's like, man, you've made my life a lot more difficult. I can't believe like how crazy this is, but again, it's an adjustment, right? So it's, it's something that's new. Um, And yeah, there's a bit more um, uh, uh, hoops. You have to jump through there because of that barrier of the container, but you have to keep in mind that like, that's one of the great things about Docker is that it does create that barrier for you. That's what enables all these benefits of Docker. So you, you kind of have to, um, take the good with the bad, um, Mm -hmm. and just learn to adjust, right. And to, to, to kind of, um, there's many, many strategies to, to mitigate these, these, um, some of these, these downsides and these, these, um, typical problem areas that developers have, and you can make your, your process a lot smoother. And that's what happens, right. A part of that, that adoption period is that you start learning. It's like, okay, yeah, like I can do my logs a little bit differently. Maybe I'll, um, you know, uh, write them to the file system and, and allow that to be shared with with my host. So now I actually can see what's going on inside the container without being inside the container and understanding how that works and and why that that might be okay um, for me to do. I want to put a placeholder on that for us to talk about that a little bit later. This,
1: the things that people learn when they're overcoming these sort of painful new boundaries. Um, but before we talk about that, I want to Go on. Okay. So you talked about phase one was um understanding containers. So then what happens after that? What's phase two or or what's the next step in the evolution?
0: Right. Um, and so I think you know, they're not they're not necessarily like these really nice discrete phases, right? Because that because mm-hmm. that 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 what we're calling phase one, that kind of like really understanding <laughs> and 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 grokking this idea of containers and that your software is running inside this protected box um that really is not um, meant to be seen from the outside um that is like the overall encompassing thing that you have to 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 get over um and just really really kind of get your head around that and i kind of this is i don't know if uh this is going back a little bit but um there's a movie called the abyss by james cameron and in that movie um some uh undersea uh I believe they're uh, oil well trigger, uh, uh drillers, and um, but they have a uh, there's a Navy SEALs mission that comes along with them because um, the Navy SEALs have some secret top secret project thing that they they want to do as well. So they go down with them, and at one point in the movie, the, the Navy SEAL shows them this this new technology they have, where um, he takes the pet rat of one of the the oil drilling um, employees. And gives him this this fluid um, for his he puts him in this 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 container of fluid, and the guy is kind of freaking out because like this is his pet and his pet's gonna drown, and the the rat is submerged in this fluid and you can see it it's just struggling it's 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 trying to to get free it looks like it's suffocating um, but the Navy SEAL guy is saying no no this is like a special fluid it's actually highly oxygenated and. The rat will be able to breathe. It just has to stop resisting it and just let it happen normally. And so, gradually, there's less and less resistance from the rat um, until finally, it's breathing normally. And so, technologies like this—that kind of that 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 scene—always comes back to me. It kind of feels like this 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 breathing fluid analogy, where you know you kind of go through this. It's a very radically different way in thinking of things. It's it's so it's so different that there's a lot of resistance and struggling with it, but you know, gradually you get more and more comfortable with it until it's like, okay, I got it. I understand this. this. This feels
1: normal. Gotcha. So if we can't talk about it in phases, and I still want to talk about the the whole process a little bit because I think where we've left off is um, developers are getting their heads around what this is and, and they've maybe been kicking and screaming a little bit because um, it's changed their lives a little bit. So how did they start over, you know, beyond you know the analogy that you gave where it's like well just breathe um what what is kind of the next thing that happens like what causes them to start realizing that they can breathe what is a benefit that they start seeing or is it
0: what happens next right so so part of it is definitely just the whole experience right of actually just like doing it so like like you said like hey i i've just dockerized my software i've run it inside a container it immediately dies i don't know what's going on so now i got to figure out like okay how do I debug this? Like, how do I figure out what happens? Right. So now you start learning about like, oh, this is how I can go list the containers that that ran inside Docker, and and oh, here's this flag that shows me to show not only active containers but containers that are no longer active, along with their exit codes. Um, and this is how I can see what happened inside that container with this with this other Docker command. Um, you can you start using techniques like, oh, um, maybe I can. Um, Uh, I'm still having problems figuring out what's going on. So I'm going to make it so that my container doesn't exit, right? I'm going to put like a sleep command um, in there that will keep that container running so it doesn't prematurely exit. And then, as you talked about before, you can now shell into your container as if it were just a whole other machine, right? And so you can now SSH into your Docker container and now peek around inside the live container. And maybe it turns out like, Files that you thought were getting written to, to a certain place aren't getting written there um, and they're missing. Or you maybe the the way that your configuration was set up is is um, not the way that you thought it was. So you can start start debugging that way. And so you're, you're learning, you're learning more now about how that containerization works. You're learning some techniques to help you to help you work with it. That leads to experimenting further and, and learning more about other various problems that you may be having, like, okay, hot reloading. Like how can I how can I do that? Um, and so, you know, people will go and, and do some, some Googling and some, some looking at some blog articles and say, okay, I, I, now I understand like there's, there's, there's ways to, to do this. And so let me experiment with that. Um, so I, I, think it's this, it's this process that, um, of just like getting in there, rolling up your sleeves, doing the work. And as you kind of run into these various stumbling blocks, you, you get over each one of them individually um, until the stumbling blocks that you come across become fewer and fewer and fewer. um, Right. I think you're hitting on something that to me is one of the biggest
1: benefits that I've seen from Kelsa switching to Docker. And it's the one that I tell other business people, especially business people that have that run software development teams or that have software development teams inside their businesses um, that I tell them about most um, because it's it's one thing to you know save on infrastructure costs, and it's another thing to um, to believe that you know you can get some benefits like not having to shut down your application to um, to upgrade it, things like that. Those are all great, but uh, especially for companies that don't operate at massive scale, I think this one thing is just it's just mind blowing and it's bananas how good it is, and it's that up until now. And this may just be me and it may just be my bias, but I I feel like I've seen that software developers end up in kind of two camps. And there's the camp that writes code that makes the application follow the business rules. And there's the camp that knows what's really going on inside that application, knows how to run it. And you know, back in the days of Java, it was those people that could debug a class path issue in the days of Ruby and Rails, it was the people that could figure out how to get through some sort of um, gem compilation problem or some sort of dependency problem. They understood what was going on on the machine. And there was a kind of a divide between those two. Um, And I think more people fall into the first camp where, um, you know, as long as everything goes well, they can write code that makes stuff happen on a screen that reacts to what users are trying to do. but then, when things get difficult, they need to go find the senior person or the person that that's in that that ladder camp that can actually know what's going on in the machine. And I would say that Docker forces the people that are in that that like I can only write code camp to deal with machines. Um, they can't get around it. They there's no. Uh, let me just look at the logs and see what's what's wrong. Um, everything else is just me looking at, at this other screen and typing in the commands that it tells me to. Like they have to actually understand that ports are getting mapped, and they have to understand that a machine is starting and stopping when a process is running, um, and they just have to, you know, like I said, they may have to shell into that um, for you know that container, um, and and know more about it than they did before, and. And the, the thing is, if you can learn how to code and you can get good at that, there's nothing that prevents you from learning about how machines work and how your code runs on machines. It's, just, it's almost, I think it happens almost out of a certain kind of laziness or lack of interest. Um, and Docker is like, nope, you don't get to be lazy anymore. You don't get to not be interested in this anymore. You have to learn this. Um, and so then all of a sudden, your whole team is better. They had, they can all do stuff that they didn't used to be able to do anymore, and I could be overselling this, but is that what you've seen as well, Chris?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Docker contain, can, containers in general. Um, you know, you're you're virtualizing the machine, right? So you 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 have various of the subsystems that are being virtualized. So whether it be networking or um, uh, input, you know, uh, I/O devices, um, storage. Mm -hmm. All these things come to the forefront now with Docker, right? Like before, like if you're just, if you're just writing in a um, dynamic language um, such as like Python or JavaScript or whatnot, like there's no real necessity. Like you can get, like, as you were talking about, you can get by with writing software, really not really understanding how a computer works. You really can't, which is kind of like an unfortunate thing. Right. And like, I think kind of as you alluded to, there's, there's certain folks out there where they're okay with that. Like not having to know about that stuff. Right. They just, they can write some code and there's going to be a lot of stuff that's mysterious to them, but they can get by with their job without really knowing that stuff. right? Um, With Docker, sorry, it's not going to happen. You know, you're gonna, you're going to have to know um, about networking. You're going to have to know about storage. Um, You're going to have to start thinking about like different types of file systems. And that's just kind of the way it is. And so, and, and it, because of that it, it does make you a better developer, right? Because now you're you understand more about how on how how the computer actually works. Um, and those kinds of principles and and bits of knowledge are going to be useful for other things. So now someone that maybe they hadn't really done anything with um, you know, cloud um, type things, um now maybe like Things like DNS start making a lot more sense to them, and so they can go use something like Route Route Fifty Three, and like they understand that. Um, you know, it might even you know definitely SSHing into a machine, um, you know, over a VPN or something like that. That becomes much more approachable, um, and and uh, and whatnot. So, absolutely makes sense. Exactly, some... exactly. So when when I was upset that a deployment
1: was taking a week that should have taken a couple of hours, um, maybe a better response would have been, well, guess what? The developers that are taking a week are, it's taking this long because they're learning DNS, they're learning file systems, they're learning networking, they're learning all these things that they just didn't know before before now. And that's why it's going to take a week or longer to get them to get them up to speed. And yeah, then now they do, and it's like, Oh my goodness! The team is so much more capable. So, in the process of okay, we're we're taking on Docker. We're learning this. We're doing it. We've sort of been focused for the this whole part, this whole first part of the conversation on what happens to developers inside the organization that decides to take this on, and that is kind of the hardest place. It's the it's the place where there's the most pushback and the most pain. Um, but I think you know it's not it's not everything. It, it, hopefully, you're never stuck 100% in development. You eventually um, put some software on staging environments and let other people see it, or you test it in some testing environment, or you or you put it in production and give it to the world. So, um, let's talk about some of the things that happen
0: after development and and what it's like for those things. So, you know, this is definitely one of the the huge features of of Docker is that when you Dockerize your code, you're basically packaging it up. As an image, um, that image is basically a description of how to go start one of these containers with your um, with your software and the configuration and the operating system and all the support it needs in order to run. Um, and you know, one of the big promises of, promises of docker is that if it runs if it runs inside docker on your machine it's going to run inside docker on someone else's machine right there's, there's, it's fully self-describing. It really shouldn't be anything else that someone needs to do. Um, so, it, so having this this interoperability, this this ease of of um, passing these things around, so that anyone can can come up to speed with it, um, is a huge is a huge benefit. So, even still, just working locally, just being able to have another developer, someone else on your team, to be able to sync up with your code, have that Docker image be built, and then run the code without really having to do anything, um, is, is, is a pretty huge win. I know in the past I've been on teams where before Docker was around, it might take you two or three days to get your development environment up and running in order to you, for you to actually run the, run the software that you're, that you're meant to be building. So you have to go install compilers and various libraries and, um, sometimes device drivers and you have to go get these dependencies and, you have to have these credentials, and um, there'll be a big long wiki post telling you how to do all this stuff. So, with with Docker, that's really kind of done as part of the Dockerization process. Um, and after that, no one else has to deal with it. So you get the benefit of now passing these images um, around your your teammates in local development, but then also when you want to deploy um, to other various machines, whether they be on prem or in the cloud, um, in your Staging environments or production environments, kind of the same principle applies, right? You've you've built up this pre-packaged image um, of your software, and as long as you have Docker support um, running in the environment that you want it to be deployed in, you have utmost confidence that you're going to be good to go, and it's and it's literally just a matter of starting a new container based on that image.
1: So um, I want to stop you before we talk about before we get too much into. Bringing it up on staging or production, there was something that you said that that I kind of got stuck on, and I was wondering if it made sense to you, Rich. So, Chris, you said it's fully self-describing, and and as soon as you said that, I was like, oh, that sounds difficult to understand. Rich, did you did you know what he meant when you when you said that it was fully self-describing?
0: Yeah, I got out of it that it basically it reads that that config file and just does everything it needs to do internally. Is that right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that is
1: pretty much right. So, so the configuration file says, "Here's everything I need in order to make myself and I can make myself anywhere. I don't care if I'm making myself in salt water or fresh water or in the mountains or in the valley. I'm I can make myself." And that is exactly the kind of po- that that was exactly the point that Chris was about to make. So I I've, I've made myself in a in a development environment on somebody's
0: MacBook Pro and now um, continue from there, Chris. Yeah so like in a, in a in a typical uh workflow you know developers are working working on software they're developing locally on their machines um they go through their their development process testing um verification you know now they're like okay I'm ready I want to have this um be deployed deployments become so much simpler now with docker because what you are again what you're really deploying is is literally just that image um you don't have to go worry about like, okay, now I have to make sure I have the right operating system running on my my instance that's running in the cloud, or I need to make sure that it has like this compiler or that compiler installed on it, um, or it has this library or that library. All that stuff goes out the one the only thing you need on that, that host machine in your cloud environment is, is essentially Docker. Um, so as long as Docker is running on that, you can now very easily, you can script it, um, can be completely automated if you want to just say, Hey docker run this run this image um, and containers because they the the surface area that they virtualize is smaller than a full up virtual machine, containers can start up very very quickly so um before in the past, where we might be used to deployments taking minutes ten minutes sometimes um depending on what you're doing. Uh, when now with with Docker deployments might take seconds, five seconds, ten seconds, if that um, type thing. So much, much faster.
1: So the first company that you were working with as you were going through this process, um, were you were you spinning up ec2 instances on AWS? So you're spinning up real sort of physical machines? like they're actually virtual machines, I guess, but for all intents and purposes, they they're full machines. Were you spinning one of those up, logging into it, and then putting a container on it manually, and then running that container? And that was your that was your staging or your production
0: environment? Yeah, for all intents and purposes. So it was pretty pretty rudimentary, right? Like that was actually one of the things. um, Even just throwing out, take away Docker out of the equation, just the fact that you have like these dedicated machines, um, not behind load balancers, um, using Elastic IPs to run actual, like the, the production software. Um, so definitely, definitely rudimentary, um, and a lot of, uh, a lot of work there to, to get everything kind of more in a, um, a, a really, uh, production worthy um, environment. Um, so, so yeah, starting off with these were just dedicated EC2s, um, for each one of the services, the Docker daemon had been hand installed and was running there, um, so deployment was literally, you know, stop the stop the running container, pull the new image, and then start the container with the with with the new image um, type thing, and uh, so quickly got away from that saying hey this is this is really not uh, very scalable it's not very available um you know we we need to do some some uh, there's a lot of improvement here so how that, do you think you ended up there that seems because uh, it sort of seems like for for people that have
1: a lot of experience developing and deploying software um is it was it an accident that you ended up in that situation where you were where you were sort of hand managing containers or or was it we know this is going to be painful for a little bit. We know this is not the right way to do it, but at least it's a step in the right direction towards eventual uh, automated container management.
0: So it's it's the um, it's the life cycle of adoption, and it's also just like where the technology was too, right? So this is, you know, that process was kind of like solidified in mid 2015. And at that time, you know, you ask, ask for a count of hands, like who knows about Docker? Um, and you have a hundred people in the room, there's not going to be many people going to be raising their hands that even know mm-hmm. what Docker is. Right. But alone, mm-hmm. like what it does and like, why you would use it. Um, so this was still pretty early days, um, you know, for Docker, the, a lot of the tooling around it that we have that we enjoy today didn't exist back then. Um, so, um, that, that was part of the function. Um, same thing with, with, with like Amazon. So Amazon now has, um, its orchestration environment for Docker called uh, EC2 Container Services ECS, um, which is a great great system. makes it really easy to 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 run your Docker images across a, a fleet of, uh, of EC2 nodes that, um, you know, in mid 2015, um, it may not have existed or if it did, it was just getting started. Right. And it sure. was pretty, pretty cumbersome. So there weren't a lot of great options. Right. Um, so, it, so that, that, that's part of the reason for that. The other part of the reason, and like this is super natural, um, uh, for so many companies is that company was very early on, right. Like I said, it was a team of four developers. Um, and you know, it had recently done its, I believe it, it had, Recently done its B round um, and was really starting to to ramp up, but it was early days. So it's a it's a small, early stage startup um, with a small engineering team. Got to be like, you know, it's all about the MVP and prag- pragmatism and and getting stuff done. And so that kind of stuff gets rolled out in an incremental fashion, right? You're you build your your sophistication incrementally. It's not um, boiling the ocean from day one. Um, it's instead, you know, just making progress each day. And then as you get bigger and get more people on board, um, then you can start doing the things that you know you want to do. Sure. Okay. That makes
1: sense. I, I can imagine that it might've been a little difficult for people that had had experience, say with platforms as a service to, to deal with the fact that they're touching machines and hand managing containers when they, you know, may have just said, you know, get up. Not, that's not quite the right command but um you know get pushed to this uh production repository and then everything kind of automatically happens after that uh with their with their platform as a service
0: yeah I'm so, i mean absolutely like these the platforms as a service um they were great they they fulfilled a need where it was like it basically it was hands-off for the developer right you really didn't have right. to know anything about the cloud right like right. you were in the cloud for free right all you had to do was just like it was magic, right? It was mystery. And like, you really didn't even have to, you didn't have to know anything about that magic and mystery. You really didn't care. Right. All things, yep. all that you knew is like after 10 minutes, your application was up and running. Right. And yep. it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> I'm i I'm a cloud expert. It's like, no, not really. Um,
1: but so, so because, and I think 2015 was like kind of peak platform as a service. Um, so, And because of that, I think maybe there are a lot of people out there that are coming to Docker and coming to containers wanting that. Um, and then I think that there's there's just a glut of companies out there right now, quite literally trying to provide exactly that so, um, so that you can be Dockerized and containerized in name only. Uh, one of the ones that occurs to me off the top of my head is Containership. Um, write your code. Tell us where your code is, and we will Docker. You know, we'll put it in containers, and we'll put it on. On, you know, click the checkbox for which cloud you want it on. Mm-hmm. Um, thoughts about some of those? Would it be better to do? I guess here's a question: Would it be better to do that, or stay in a platform as a service? If if um, kind of going all in and and learning Docker and using something more sophisticated like Kubernetes or ECS is not an option.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it it's all these solutions exist out there because there's, there's various slices of the market where, where they make sense. So Mm -hmm. I think it, it really boils down to, you know, what your level of sophistication is, like what your capabilities are, what is important to you as a business. Like it may be as a business, like technology is just really not too terribly important to you. It's just something that you need to do in order to to have your business running and you may not have a huge tech team or you may not care about that. You may not have like huge scalability requirements and it may be okay for you to overpay on like a platform as a service option um, because spent, you know, going with a, with a better, you know, in air quotes technical solution that may cost half as much may save you $500 a month, but it might cost you, you know, a hundred thousand dollars to, save that 500 yeah that 500 <laughs> bucks a month right to build out the technology right, and that may right. not be your core competency right that may not make you um you know better in the marketplace for for your business to compete so it just really i think it just kind of depends um on uh, what your what your environment is what your goals are what um you know what you need to do um, but they'll they'll definitely be there's always going to be spots in there for it, it's so the the technology landscape is changing so quickly it's so dizzying i mean just amazon alone they're launching it's kind of crazy how many new sir i think they're up to like 130 services on their um their console page now and it was like maybe like 10 like four years ago mm-hmm. um and so they they're literally launching like brand new services like on a, every month several of these things and so just keeping up with the innovation that's happening is very difficult for the experts. So you now extend that out to just like the entire marketplace in general and everyone that needs to have something running in the cloud. It's like, it's super daunting. So there's, there's huge opportunities out there for companies to mitigate that, that rapid pace of innovation to make it digestible and consumable right. yep. by, by other folks. Right. So, but there's going to be opportunities there for sure.
1: Right. You you reminded me, as we, as you were talking about all the things that have been added to AWS, you reminded me of Kelsys' adoption of, of Docker and containers. And it's really been very much married to our adoption of AWS as a whole. So, you know, I think we started with just using a few AWS services here and there. Oh, let's grab a EC2 machine to do something with. Or, oh, you know, RDS, their their database management system is so good that Let's just use that for all of our databases from now on, um, and then you know after EC2 and RDS, then um, we looked at Elastic Beanstalk, and it was a great great thing for a while. Uh, but now with um, with containerization and Docker and the proliferation of AWS services, I think we must be using you know of that list of a hundred some we must be using thirty or forty, um, and so it's it's really married to AWS, and I wonder if for. I imagine for companies that are are tied into the Google Cloud or the Microsoft Cloud, if if they're going through the same thing, that taking on containerization really means um, getting in deep with the cloud provider and all of the services that it offers, and that it may not make much sense to to try to not you know to try to be cloud agnostic.
0: Yeah, it's it's this has kind of been um, an age old issue that that's been people teams grapple with, um, and they have for the last five years, right? It's like, do you lock yourself in, um, to your cloud Mm -hmm. vendor, right? By integrating in with the stuff that's specific just for them. Uh, and, you know, I think some, someone like a provider, like Amazon, that is the, you know, the undisputed leader in the space and, and cloud services, the amount of research and development they're throwing at this and the innovation that they are developing the ease of use you get, the efficiency of scale, the just the, the better cost dynamics by using and integrating with these services, it makes it much harder to to justify like keeping yourself agnostic, right? To say, oh, I'm going to pick up my stuff and go somewhere else. I'm going to go to, I'm going go to go to Azure. I'm going go to go to Google, Google Cloud. Um, so I think you know at some point you, there's some tipping point where you're using a minimal amount of of cloud services and you can have the abstraction layers on them, right? So that you can say, yeah, I'm portable and I can I can pick my stuff up and go somewhere else. But there's a tipping point where you kind of just say, you know what, I'm all in now, um, and this is this is now my my provider. And honestly, from a business perspective, that's what all these cloud providers are doing, right? That's why they are building these new services. That's why each one of these services is building on. The previous services that have been developed, right? The synergy, the the integration in with them, so they become more powerful the more that you use, right? They're tendrils; um, they don't want you to leave. They want you to right. be locked in, right? Yeah, so, exactly. You know, um, it's it's great benefits to users, right? Because you're you're getting a much more po- powerful um, platform um, to work on, and it, and it makes you much more capable, and it's more cost effective, and um, just easier to work with. But it's it's Causing some some pretty 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 severe lock in for you as well,
1: right? And I would say I think the advice that I would give to people that are looking at moving into Docker and containerization is pick a cloud, just pick one. Um, if you try not to, it will make the transition more difficult. Um, and then, and once you do pick one, uh, you'll find that it ha- that you'll be using more services within that cloud provider than than maybe you had before you decided to do Docker and containerization. So so it's a natural, like, unfortunately, the decision to go with the cloud and the decision to go with Docker and containerization is going to push you over that tipping point and get you locked into
0: whichever cloud you do pick. Yeah, indeed. And, and the truth is, is that... Um usually like especially if you're at that uh, kind of like the the workloads and the the levels of scale when you're adopting stuff like that you you're not there at that level where it, it even from a cost standpoint makes sense to like think about oh should i be running on my running myself on-prem um once you actually get to the point like if you get successful enough and you have enough traffic where it's like okay now I'm I'm really overspending by by using a cloud provider and and I want to go look at doing on prem. At that point great cuz you're you're now you you're so successful um you've obviously got um a lot of resources and you can now you can, you can go do that, right? You can go right. spend the the R&D to say okay now we're going to get off of this. And so instead of using ECS we're going to go to Kubernetes um and that'll be our orchestrator. Um, right. and we'll run it ourselves inside, you know, our own data center on bare metal. Um, right. But, but at that point, you're, you know, your if your bills three hundred thousand dollars a month on Amazon, then like that's a good problem to have.
1: Yes, yes, that's a, that can be our conclusion for today. So, so at the end of at the end of the Docker uh, containerization choice lifecycle lies a good problem where you're making three hundred thousand or you're spending three hundred thousand dollars a month on on your AWS system, and you decide to move it in on prem. But the bigger conclusion is is I think that it's as we've seen, it can be painful, but the pain—the pain the is—is pain is the pain that associated with learning, and not necessarily
0: pain that's just for the for pain's sake. Absolutely, and I, and I will say that the level of pain today to learn Docker is a lot less than the pain level of pain three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> it's so much easier today, right? So uh, it's gotten so much more sophisticated. There's so much more tooling around it. There's so much more of an ecosystem, and information, um, and it's. So it's, it's even easier to adopt it today. So even though there's still challenges and there's going to be that friction, it's a lot less so. Right on. Well, let's wrap it up. Um, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thank you.